Welcome to the podcast for the February issue of The Lancet Neurology. I'm Richard Lane. This month we're discussing cerebral cavernous malformations. Let's hear from our guest interviewee. Rustam Al-Shahi Salman. I'm a professor of clinical neurology and a medical research council senior clinical fellow at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm also an honorary consultant neurologist in NHS Lothian here in Edinburgh in Scotland. Professor Salman, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. You're one of the authors of a paper already online, but being published in the February 2016 issue of The Lancet Neurology. And this concerns cerebral cavernous malformations. Well, that's a bit of a mouthful to begin with. I'll ask you to define that. Tell us what these malformations are, what causes them, and then we'll go on and discuss the study. Cerebral cavernous malformations are known by a variety of different names, CCM for short, or most commonly cavernomas. Now, these are the second commonest vascular abnormality in the brain after aneurysms and they're actually surprisingly common. If you MRI scan the brains of healthy people without neurological symptoms, in one in every 625 people you will find one of these cavernomas lurking. The question is uh, whether these might one day bleed or not and that's what our paper addresses. And what do we think causes these cavernoma? So cavernomas are clusters of thin-walled blood vessels that shouldn't be there, a bit like capillaries. And the cavernoma itself is about a centimetre or two in diameter, and it looks rather like a raspberry when you view it pathologically or at operation. And the junctions between these blood vessel walls are a bit leaky and may ooze blood, which may cause no symptoms whatsoever. But when large amounts of blood ooze from them, they may cause symptoms like a stroke. Most of the time, these cavernomas arise without an obvious explanation. Uh, And that's usually the case when they arise on their own. But about one in five people uh, who are newly diagnosed with a cavernoma have not just one, but many. And in people who have multiple cavernomas, there's usually an underlying uh, mutation in one of three genes that's inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion. So in a nutshell, about 20% of the time, uh, cavernomas turn out to be genetic in origin, and the other 80% of the time, uh, they're sporadic. Let's talk about your current study, which is a meta-analysis, as as you will describe to us. And presumably the point here is that you're looking at these cavernoma and you're trying to line them up with the risk of developing a bleed. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So the, the two commonest symptomatic manifestations of cavernomas are stroke due to brain hemorrhage or epileptic seizures. And this meta-analysis just focuses on the first, brain hemorrhage. And in previous studies, the estimated risks of brain hemorrhage for people with cavernomas are rather imprecise, and we're not completely sure about what may predict hemorrhage as being more likely in some people versus others. And you can well imagine for patients, this is one of the questions that for, that is foremost in their mind when they come to see a clinician like me with a new diagnosis. So what we set out to do in this meta-analysis, and I should add it's an individual patient data meta-analysis, which uh, enables one statistically to look at uh, quite a few more questions than simply a meta-analysis of study summary level data. Uh, So in this meta-analysis, we sought to address uh, 
the risk of brain hemorrhage and see if we could divide patients into groups according to their future risk of brain hemorrhage. Excellent. Now, looking at the results, just outline those main findings. So we painstakingly, systematically reviewed the literature for all available publications on the prognosis for people with cavernomas for brain hemorrhage. And we identified 22 publications that in included almost 3,000 people. And we invited uh, the authors of all of those studies and, and pestered them with repeated invitations to try and get them to share their data with this exercise to generate the largest so far published of the study of the prognosis of cavernomas. And we succeeded in obtaining more than half of the published data relating to 1,620 people who are in this meta-analysis. The people themselves come from six separate studies covering a variety of geographical locations. Toronto in Canada and Mayo Clinic in the USA with the North American contributors. Uh, in Europe, our population-based study in Scotland and a hospital-based study at the Lariboisiere Hospital in Paris contributed. And in Asia, our colleagues in Seoul in South Korea and Tiantan Hospital in Beijing, China, contributed these patients. It would seem that, it, that, that it's actually the location of the, of the cavernoma that seems to be the best indicator of risk of a, of a subsequent bleed. Is that right? The, yes, that's right. There are actually two major predictors that we can now be really confident about when thinking about the prognosis for brain hemorrhage for people with cavernomas. Firstly, there is uh, whether the cavernoma is located in the brainstem or elsewhere in the brain. And secondly, is the issue about whether the cavernoma has already caused a symptomatic stroke due to brain hemorrhage when the cavernoma was first diagnosed or whether the patient presented with either no symptoms or other symptoms that led to the cavernoma diagnosis. So if you divide patients into groups according to whether they have a brainstem cavernoma or not, or whether they presented with a brain hemorrhage or not, you get four distinct prognostic groups. And I can summarize the um, headline findings for those groups if you wish. Yes, please do. So we quantified what the five-year risk of a brain hemorrhage was for people with cavernomas, which is the sort of time period that we could be really reasonably confident about the included studies covering. And that's a reasonable time window for patients to be considering uh, with respect to their own prognosis and also to compare risks of treatment against. And what we found was that if you uh, come to medical attention with a cavernoma in the brainstem that has already bled over the subsequent five years, there's almost a one in three chance of that cavernoma bleeding again. If you presented with a brain hemorrhage, but you did not have a brainstem cavernoma, the cavernoma was located elsewhere, then that risk was approximately halved to 18% over the following five years. If you had a brainstem cavernoma, but no bleed from it when you were first diagnosed, then over five years, the risk was roughly 8%. And the lowest risk group of all were people who'd never had a bleed and did not have a brainstem cavernoma. And their risk over five years was around about 4%. So less than one in 100 risk per year of a brain hemorrhage for people who have an incidentally detected cavernoma outside the brainstem, which is actually the majority of people with this disease. Some clear findings there. Big question is, what are the implications of these findings, particularly for treatment? That's the huge question that faces many people with cavernomas. And I think what uh, this enables us to do, if you like, is enter an era of slightly more personalized medicine for people with cavernomas, whereby we can customize 
um, reasonably reliably a risk for them of bleeding over the following five years, which then enables them to indirectly compare those risks of bleeding with the risks that um, a surgeon might quote them for treatment of their cavernoma. And the two main treatments that he used these days are either neurosurgical excision using sophisticated microsurgical techniques or stereotactic radiosurgery, which many people feel is um, uh, not yet conclusively proven to be a treatment for these conditions, but is used experimentally by some people in clinical practice. What are the next steps in, uh, in terms of research? What else are you working on in this field? Well, as far as the next steps go, I think there are, there are two major steps to take, and one of them has been very nicely described by Ale Algra and Gabriel Rinkle in the editorial that accompanies uh, this paper. They suggest that given the distinct prognostic groups that we can put people into, that some decision analysis and modelling approaches are needed to try and identify who would definitely not benefit from treatment and who probably would benefit from treatment when simply comparing risks of treatment versus risks of leaving the cavernoma alone. So there would be some modelling studies that could be done using the observational data that we have on treatment and the observational data that we have in this individual patient data meta-analysis. But as many people know, the randomized control trial really is the um, fairest test of any treatment and the beauty of randomization would be if it was possible for this disease uh, that we would create two groups who are identical in, in all respects and compare the outcome from treatment versus no treatment. And I do think that both of those approaches are needed. So we're preparing applications for a randomized control trial uh, to, to really examine this crucial question for people with cavernomas, which is not that simple because their risks are not just about whether they're going to go on and have a brain hemorrhage. There are also risks of epileptic seizures. And we also need to bear in mind that brain hemorrhage for people with cavernomas is not the severe disabling disease that it so often is for much older people who have no obvious underlying cause of their brain hemorrhage apart from small vessel disease. Many people with cavernoma bleeds are mildly affected and make a full recovery. The comparison of treatment versus no treatment is not as straightforward as simply looking at the rates of a stroke without treatment and the rates of stroke with treatment. Those are two very key further steps to take. And, and the last is to involve patients with setting priorities for future research. And I can tell you more about that if you wish. Just briefly, if you will, that will be a good concluding uh, point, I think. The most important thing when considering future research priorities for a disease are not only what's already known, which an approach like this, a systematic review and individual patient data meta-analysis tells you, but it's what patients and carers think are important as well. And the James Lind Alliance has a fantastic uh, priority setting approach that involves patients, carers, clinicians and other people interested in the disease. And we've been through uh, a long process of the James Lind Alliance priority setting partnership with the patient support organisation in the UK, Cavernoma Alliance UK. And we've now come up with the top 10 uh, research priorities according to patients, carers and doctors for people with cavernomas. And the number one uncertainty was does treatment or no treatment improve outcome for people diagnosed with brain or spine cavernoma, which I think really underlines the need for the two studies 
that I've talked about, the modelling study and a randomised control trial. This is clearly a very fascinating area where uh, a lot more groundwork needs to be done, but it, the next few years are going to be very interesting. I'm sure we're going to be hearing more about it in uh, the Lancet Neurology. But in the meantime, Professor Rustam Salman, many thanks indeed for talking to the Lancet Neurology. It was my pleasure. Thank you.